Well, good morning, you guys. For those of y'all who were not here last Sunday and you just got back into town this week, welcome back. We are excited that you guys are back with us and excited to be able to regather with you guys. If you're also visiting for the first time, let me welcome you guys. Uh, for y'all who may not know me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here, and it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be starting off this morning a series uh, for the rest of the spring called Hard Questions. So uh, we're going to be tackling some of the most challenging, controversial, uh, and deep issues that have attacked and that are still questioning of the Christian faith. Uh, and we're going to walk through those this semester. We're not going to stay all theological and all philosophical like we will this morning. We're going to hit really practical issues, real moral issues. We'll go all over the gamut from sex to abortion to money to uh, spiritual gifts to the miraculous to politics. We're going to go all over the map this semester. And so I'm really excited about where we're going this spring. I think it's going to be really uh, relevant, really challenging. I think it's going to stretch you guys. And so I think hopefully it'll, it'll push you guys as we walk through the spring. So let me, uh, let's pray and then we'll kind of jump into this morning, Lord. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you are King of Kings, that you are Lord of Lords, um, and that you have redeemed us from darkness, that you've transferred us from the kingdom of, uh, of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, even as we open your word, I pray that you would stretch us, that you would teach us, that you would cause us to know how to respond to culture, um, that you would cause us to know how to respond in a way that's winsome, that you would cause us to understand even what our culture says at times. Um, and Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word, that your, the very unfolding of your word would bring light, um, that you would teach us, that you would stretch us. And I, and I pray specifically, specifically this morning, Lord, that you'd allow us not to remain just intellectual and philosophical, but Lord, but I pray that you, you would move our hearts. And that you would stretch us. Uh, Father, I pray even for myself, Lord. I pray that you would maintain my voice, that you would maintain its strength, and that you would allow me to uh, finish this morning, Lord. And we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Some of you guys are no stranger to the feeling uh, of frustration that comes to ever being excluded from something. I don't know where it has been for you guys. I don't know how. For me, often it was uh, those moments, elementary school, junior high, not being included on a sporting team, being drafted last for me, I realized sixth grade, I realized what popularity was, and I realized I was on the wrong side of that circle. I don't know about you guys, uh, whether it was a club in college that you guys really wanted to be a part of, but you were excluded from, whether it was a, a certain girl or a certain guy that you would have done anything to have a relationship with, and yet you got the forearm shiver, you got rejected and said, actually, I want nothing more than maybe a friendship with you at that. All of us have had some kind of experience of exclusion, right? And with that has come some sense of frustration. And even if you look uh, at times politically, even if you look economically in our day and time, sometimes those that don't have financially, who are excluded from those that have, can respond not just with frustration, but that frustration can even at times lead to violence. And so at times it's an experience that you and I have all had. And yet when you come into the religious arena, and you come into the spiritual arena, and you ask a question like, does absolute truth exist? You and I have heard all kinds of responses to our culture. In fact, they have all responded to verses like this. Let me give you guys a couple of verses uh, this morning. Acts chapter 4. I read this to you guys last week. Here's what the New Testament says about, in a sense, absolute truth and about who Jesus is and about what Christianity is. It says this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christianity and the scriptures are absolutely clear that there is an exclusivity that comes with Christianity. And it is not apologetic about it in any way, shape, or form, and yet there could be nothing more offensive and nothing more rude to the culture that you and I live in today. In fact, I found a quote this week uh, in a a book that I would highly recommend if any of you guys have read Tim Keller's Reason uh, for God. It's a great book, and in it, even in chapter 1, he kind of tackles a lot of the material I'm going to put in front of you guys today, but ran across this quote, and and I think you guys have heard something like this, or maybe you've even thought this as you've walked through college. Religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world, 
If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the the world will never know peace. Some of you all may have thought that before. That the exclusivity that comes with Christianity or any other religion and the kinds of differences that come between those religions and the violence that at times therefore comes from that makes exclusivity and absolute truth a dangerous topic. In fact, as we kind of walk through this idea, I'll tell you that the first objection many have to Christianity is just that, that it is exclusivistic, that it is arrogant for those that would think that they have the truth and others don't. So we're going to ask the question this morning, is there absolute truth? And if the answer to that question is yes, then how do you determine what is true and what is not? That's really where we're going to go this morning. But for most of our culture, the answer to that question is no. For most of our culture, they will say that there is not absolute truth. And in their responses and in the way that they construct their answers, I want to encourage you guys, and we're going to walk through this morning, you're going to see this, that actually their very answers that deny that absolute truth exists is an a- actually an answer that is actually clarifying that absolute truth does exist. And that's where we're going to kind of go this morning. We're going to walk through this. We're going to kind of hit a little bit practically at first. We're going to cover some history. We're going to hit philosophically. And then we're going to end up uh, far more in the scriptures and far more in a way that seems familiar to you on a Sunday morning. But that's kind of where we're going this morning, all right? First of all, kind of absolute truth objections to it. You guys know this in a university setting. You guys know this culturally. You know this in media. That for the most part, truth is under attack in our culture in our day and time. And there are tons of objections as to the idea of absolute truth existing. And the first is this. That is dangerous. Uh, people have said over the generations and uh, year after year, century after century, that the idea that there's absolute truth is a dangerous idea. And because it's so dangerous that you actually ought to ban it from culture, from society, and from countries. If you guys have watched the book of Eli the last couple of weeks, as you guys kind of watched that story, you guys watched that movie, I don't know if you guys caught this, but in the silo, in that one little spot where uh, uh, Denzel Washington and the, and the girl are talking, you know there's a war that occurred in, in, in this one little conversation. You may have missed it, but the reason for the war was clear, they said. that Because of religious differences, because of uh, the kinds of uh, differences that led to violence between religions, the world was, in a sense, blown up. In many regards, the world that was had gone, in a sense, backwards into the Wild West, if you will. And so you had martial law, you had all kinds of craziness. And the reason why, according to the movie, at least according to the dialogue Washington has, is because religious differences created that violence. And because of that, when the war was over, what did they do? They burned every religious book you could find. Because the idea was this, that religions and their idea of exclusivistic truth leads to intolerance and it leads to violence. The real irony of that is that if you look historically speaking, not the irony, but but in in, in reality, it's true. If you look at the Christian church, you look at Christianity, it is impossible impossible to deny that violence has at some point come. Christian crusades were one of the most shameful moments for the Christian church ever. Um, if you looked in the 17th century, you, you know as well that in Europe, uh, this 30 years war decimated Europe in a war that was between Protestants and Catholics that basically ravaged Europe. And so for many, as they came out of the 17th century, many thought that religions were the problem. That the idea of an exclusivistic truth was why violence and intolerance had come. The irony, though, that would come is if you look at history and you look at those that would follow is that the very countries and the very governments that would then ban religion that would then oppress religious practice were the very countries that you actually end up seeing even greater intolerance and even greater violence. A few examples of that, uh, if you look at the uh, country of China, uh, if you look at the, 19th, or the 20th century, what you saw happen was a, a movement or a period known as a cultural revolution in which you had some of the greatest injustices societally uh, as every educated, wealthy, business, skilled individual was in a sense put out to physical labor, beat, savaged, ravaged, and killed in many regards. And what you had happen in, in China was one of the most horrific human atrocities you'd ever see. Also, not just China, you think of Nazi Germany, a country that would ban religious practice, and you had the Holocaust. 
You had one of the most horrific human events that would ever occur. And you had it by governments that thought that religion was the problem. In fact, the Christian historian Alistair McGrath says this, The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century was practiced by those that believed religion caused intolerance and violence. Check that. Many thought that religion was what was causing intolerance and violence, but in countries and in governments that oppressed religion, that banned it and removed it, you had even greater violence and even greater intolerance than had ever been seen before. Now, obviously, the issue is this, that religions and exclusivistic truth claims are not the problem. In fact, most of society, most of Europe in the 17th century went a completely different way. Most would not ban religion, but what they would do is they would begin to dismiss religion and bury it under something that they would exalt even higher. So as you guys walk through the 17th century, you know the periods known as the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, where it was, in a sense, science exaltation over Scripture. And now, no longer did people trust the church. Now, no longer did people listen to the church. But what they trusted and what they listened to and what they believed in was science. Science was seen as that which could bring dignity back to humanity. Science was seen as that which could bring progress, could bring dignity back to humanity that religion had stolen from it. And so, in the 17th century, you had Renaissance, you had ration, you had uh, philosophy, you had all these things that were, in a sense, even the university itself was a product of a period known as modernism in which science and reason were exalted above revelation, above scripture, and above the church. And in many regards, what you had in that period was a time in which the church was replaced by the laboratory, in which case the priest was replaced by the scientists, and now science was seen as the end-all, be-all cure and answer for what humanity needed. If you guys know what would happen in the 20th century, it was not just cultural revolution, not just the Holocaust, but you also had a few of the very products of science, education, technology that would bring utter disillusionment and despair to humanity. A couple of things I think about are one, you think about um, uh, the Titanic 1912, engineering's greatest marvel and feet goes out into the Atlantic Ocean and just sinks when it hits an iceberg. All that engineering, all that science, all that technology could produce was not fail safe. Even more further, you think about uh, later in the 1945 period, World War II ends with what? Atomic bomb. What science had created did not restore dignity back to humanity. It did in some regards, but it also led again to violence, and again it led to intolerance. And the issue is this, it is not science, it is not religion that is the problem, but the problem is what? If both led to violence in some regards, what is the problem? The problem is with the human heart. In a sense, it's a case of user error, right? You guys think about sometimes, it wasn't religion, it wasn't science that led to these things, but it was the men and women that were using those things that led to those results, because the human heart is dark. I ran across a story this week of a woman who had bought a computer and she called the computer uh, store from which she bought it because her computer was still under manu- uh, manufacturer warranty because the CD-ROM had broken, had cracked right in half. And so she called uh, claiming that she needed her computer repaired. And so as the IT person was beginning to walk through and, and, and explain and ask what had gone wrong, she began uh, to explain and, and speak of a coffee cup holder. Now, the IT guy couldn't really figure it out until he got to her house and, she, and he realized at that moment that what the woman was doing was using the CD-ROM drive that she had ejected as where she put her coffee. So coffee could be seen spilled all over the computer as this guy showed up. The issue wasn't with the computer or the CD-ROM drive, right? The issue was with user error, right? Let me give you guys a few more examples of this. All right, ran across this picture. Actually, let me go back. I ran across this one. Um, Now, again, I don't think the forerunner, and again, for you guys to know Tyler, who leads worship up here, he drives a forerunner. This is not his forerunner, just FYI, all right? But somehow this thing landed right here, okay? Again, I don't think the forerunner spazzed out and somehow got up there, and I still don't know how that happened. Even more, I love this picture. How in the world did that happen, all right? 
I have no earthly idea. What I do find funny is this woman that's posing in front of it as if she's proud, all right? I don't know what she's doing, okay? But the issue, again, was not with the car. It wasn't with the vehicle. The vehicle was not designed to do that, right? The issue was with user error. And I think in many regards, as you look at uh, religion being dangerous, what happened was not with a religion that was immediately or, or in, uh, intrinsically meant to lead to violence or intolerance, but I think Christianity at its very essence was not meant to do that in any way shape or form. The problems with the humans that got into it and that were sinful, that were wicked, and that led it in different directions that were not right. In fact, as you look at the 20th century, as we move on from the 20th century, what uh, the objections to absolute truth become are no longer so much pragmatic that it leads to violence, that it leads to intolerance, but it becomes far more philosophical than it is pragmatic. So the really the second objection you get to absolute truth in our culture and our day and time is one that you hear far more now than you did the first one. And that's the idea that it's untrue. And what philosophy does and what our culture does today is not so much decree that it should be banned, but what they do is they try to blend all truth claims in such a way that they all sound the same. And it's not such a pragmatic approach, but it's far more of a philosophical approach. And I'm give you guys, in a sense, three different sound bites of how this comes out and how you hear this. First is this, and you guys have all heard this. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. If you've looked into Buddhism, if you looked into Islam, if you looked into Judaism or Christianity one bit, you know that there are a, a series of claims and beliefs about God, about man, about creation, about what God does and how he acts in the world. They're not just preferences or opinions. There's no way to reconcile those. They are so clear and so black and white different from one another. There's no way to blend those ideas. Religions, in many ways, are, are, are not the same, and they are not on par with the conversation we guys may have about who could kick whose butt, Jack Bauer or Jason Bourne, all right? All right, and yet what many of us are done in our culture is they've removed the discussion about religions to that very level. And if you want my opinion, I would go with Jack Bauer because I think the women in his life could kick Jason Bourne's butt, all right? If you guys saw it last Monday night, the girl that he's romantic interest with saws a dude's hand off, all right? That's neither here nor there, all right? That's just kind of me, all right? Um, but again, all right, the, the issues and the differences in, in religions are not on the same par as a conversation we guys may have about Jack Bauer and Jason Bourne. It's not preference, it's not opinion, it's not subjective, it's not open for a discussion. There is something about truth that is absolutely irreconcilable at times. That opinions and preferences you may have about certain actors or TV shows, about Lost or whatever, are, are, are personal and they are subjective, but there's something in religions that cannot be reconciled. Islam has a view of God that he can do whatever he wants. He's not constrained by certain character or nature. Christianity says no. God is constrained by his nature, and therefore he cannot do certain things. Every every other religion has a certain view of man that says man is intrinsically good, that he can will and he can, if not corrupted by society, he can do good. Christianity says no, actually when humanity is born, they are born evil, they are born hostile to God, and those are completely different views of truth and views of humanity and views of God. And it's impossible to reconcile those unless you've done something like I think we've had seen happen in our day and time, in which I think uh, the period and the culture that you and I live in has in many ways changed the rules as to how truth operates. You and I live in a period in time known as postmodernism. And I know you've heard that term. I know it's probably been beat into you. But for the most part, what has happened for you and I, the reason someone can say a claim like that is because truth and the way that it operates and the rules that govern it have completely changed. No longer is truth something that is external and objective and propositional Now it is something that is internal, subjective, and personal. No longer does the scriptures and no longer does reason or even science necessarily have the highest voice as to what's true, but now what really has the highest voice as to what's true is your personal intuition, feeling, and experience. 
whether your experience validates something as true, has really become the highest voice, the highest judge in the land. Which is why what is true for you can be true for you, but even if it's completely different than what's true for me, that's fine, because truth is now personal, subjective, and open to my own experience and whatever my feelings say. And so now, if you have a certain idea and beliefs, set of beliefs, and I have a different one, and they completely contradict, no problem, because truth is now personal, it's not external, it's not objective, it's not scientific in a sense. That makes sense? That's really where our culture has gone, and they've completely changed the way that truth operates and the way that you handle truth. In fact, I think in many regards, though, what they're going to do is going to betray their very own criticism because they're still going to construct an external set of beliefs that govern and that underpin the very set of beliefs they have. Ultimately, even for the postmodern, they have a belief about God, they have a belief about humanity, they have a belief about creation, even about what God does in this world that governs the very assumptions and claims they make. We'll kind of hit that as we go. Uh, But here we're kind of in this period of philosophical uh, attack in a sense. Here's another quote for you guys. Each religion sees part of truth, but none can see the whole. Uh, The illustration is often used of this. Here's what the postmodernists will say. They'll say this. They'll say, in a sense, it's like three blind men walking up to an elephant. Each blind man walks up, and what he determines of what the elephant is like is based on what he can see, feel, and touch. Of course, since he's blind, he can't see, so strike that. But what he can touch, right? So what he thinks the elephant is, the guy that walks up to the trunk, he thinks it's something slender and flexible. The guy that walks up to the leg thinks the elephant is actually, uh, in a sense, round and large. But the guy that walks up to the elephant's side thinks that the elephant is actually large and flat. Each have a different perspective of the elephant. And the idea and the claim is this, that each of the blind men have an aspect of truth, but none of them have them all. And then in that sense, they're all right. But it is the postmodernist who sits on the outside who can see all and decree that you actually don't see in the full. And what's kind of ironic about the postmodernist claim is that they're betraying the very criticism they're making about other religions. They think that other religions think that they can see the, it all, but in reality, the postmodernists say, no, no, you can't, but I can. And, but what gives them the right to say that they can, but the religions can't? The very criticism, the very claim, falls prey to the very criticism they're making about religions. What gives postmodernity the value, the authority, and, and the sureness to say that all other religions see in part, but they can see in whole? The third thing I think is interesting is they'll say religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. In fact, it's often said that the reason that you are a Christian maybe is because you were here at Texas A&M University, a conservative place. Maybe you were born in the Bible Belt. Maybe your parents were Christians. Therefore, you came up in the Christian faith, and if you hadn't, you wouldn't be a Christian. And therefore, all religions and all views on religion, truth, are in a sense culturally and historically partial. In fact, a Christian uh, philosopher was asked this, if you were born in Morocco, you wouldn't be a Christian, but rather Muslim. He responded and said this, suppose we can see that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But the same goes for the pluralists or the postmodernists. If they had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. Does it follow that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process. That makes sense? The, the philosopher is saying this, that the very criticism that postmodernity is making of Christianity is the very criticism that they fall prey to as well. And so if they can make the criticism, why can't we criticize them? And what gives them, again, legs to stand on to make their claims that exclusivity, truth, and claims of that kind are to be removed and dismissed and blended with all other ones? Again, there's something in the pluralist uh, viewpoint that in a sense relativizes everything that there is no relevance whatsoever to any of their claims. The very claims and criticisms they're making about exclusivistic religious belief are the very kinds of things that still they are vulnerable to the, in their own claims. Does that make sense? 
And so what you have happening is those that are claiming it's dangerous want to ban it because they think that religions lead to violence and intolerance, and yet those governments and the societies that do that are not fixing the problem. In fact, philosophy that's going to blend all religious claims, is, again, is not really having a leg to stand on because the very criticisms they make of Christianity are the very criticisms that we can make of them as well. There's nothing that removes them from their own criticisms that they give us. So the question is, if it's not pragmatically to be banned, if it's not philosophically to be blended, what do you do with it? Uh, for those that can't ban it, can't blend it, typically what they do in our day and time is just bury it. <laughs> hey, your religious faith is yours, just keep it private. Don't bring it into the business, don't bring it into society, don't bring it into politics. It's to be yours, to be kept in your own home, keep it private. And yet, the reality is whatever you believe is going to impact every arena of your life, and there's no way to keep it private. Here's why. Because it's not just that there are objections to truth, but there's an absolute necessity for absolute truth. It is impossible to argue against it because everyone that will argue against it is actually constructing an absolute claim about truth. Everyone does it. Everyone absolutely does it. In fact, I think if you look at different religions, there's no way to blend those claims because the claims are so contradictory that you can't just dismiss it. For you guys who have been here before, if I were to ask you, has this wall behind me always been this color of brown? There's two answers you could say. One is yes, one is no. And no matter what you sincerely believe in all of your heart, there's only one correct answer, right? We just painted it yesterday, okay? Just FYI, okay? If you're like, hey, something seems different, that's why, all right? Um, So you can't completely blend and dismiss completely contradicting claims of truth, okay? Because that's the very nature of truth. You have to actually hold to something because you will hold to something, um, you know, actually, I think also, and the bigger reason for why I think absolute truth exists is not just the nature of truth, but it's the nature of man. Truth is such that humanity has always botched it, okay? Take you guys to Romans chapter 1. We're actually going to try to open the scriptures for the first time this morning, all right? Romans 1. Here's what Paul says. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For since the creation of the world has invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Yet they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Here's what Paul is saying, a few things I want to hit for you guys in Romans 1, and I think it's a critical passage that we talk about, does absolute truth exist? The idea is this, that God in creation has revealed certain things about himself. And he's revealed those things to all people, all generations, all time, because all people have the witness and the revelation of creation. Specifically, what has he revealed? He's revealed his eternal power and his divine nature. But look at what humanity has done and always does. Instead of embracing and rightly responding to truth, they've suppressed it. Not only have they suppressed it, but they've actually exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And instead of worshiping the one who's created, they've worshiped the one for that which has been created. And what humanity always does is it receives revelation, is humanity always has an issue in themselves intrinsically that we don't rightly respond to revelation. This is a lot of the reason why men dread romance. Men have two issues that humanity has. Men are flawed and men are finite and we can't handle romance very well. So instead of embracing romance, we suppress it. Instead of pursuing and bringing flowers to romance, we botch it, we forget. This is why we dread Valentine's Day. All right, Huge expectations, little ability, little capacity, and we're flawed. All right, Same kind of thing with humanity and truth. All right, Humanity does not pursue truth, they suppress it. Humanity does not bring truth flowers. Instead, they forget it and they walk away. Humanity does not rightly respond to truth. It is true for all people. It is true for all times. That's why when humanity looks at creation, for most part, humanity dismisses what they see and they walk away from it. 
And so actually Paul will say in Romans 1 that that's why humanity's heart is darkened and their speculations and their thinking become futile. Because there's something intrinsically wrong with humanity. That's why religion, that's why science, that's why it all goes astray. Because humanity as the user error, the one that's operating it, always operates it at some point wrongly. All right? And here's the issue. The issue is two things. One, humanity's flawed. We don't rightly respond to it. The second is that humanity is finite. God has revealed, and yet we can't understand all that he's revealed. Um, I love Romans 11 for this purpose. Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God has revealed. We typically don't respond rightly to his revelation, but even what we do respond rightly to, we can't understand at all. There are certain things about the very nature, character, and activity of God that we will never get our heads around. That is what makes him the creator and us the creature. That is what makes him infinite and us finite. And that is also what causes us to worship him and stand in awe because he's other, he's distinct, and he's beyond us. If I could completely understand all of God, all of his activity, there'd be nothing to be in wonder about because I would grasp it, I would understand it, I could control it even. And that is what humanity almost always does to God. That's why we begin to worship the creation and not the creator because we want to control, we want to own, and we want to understand all of life. And yet, God in his essence and his character is such that he cannot be totally understood. And yet, postmodernism and a lot of philosophy will say that God can't be understood. And yet, I argue against that in saying that I think God in creation created because he wants to be known and so he's revealed and he's spoken so we can know. But the problem is, we don't rightly respond to it. So how do you know what is one truth claims verifiability over another? If man is flawed and he's finite and he can't rightly respond to revelation or to truth, how do you know and how do you argue between competing truth claims? I would argue you can't trust your own abilities. You have to trust something else. So I would say that, that really the necessity for absolute truth is not just based on the nature of man. That man doesn't rightly respond to revelation, but it's based also on the very nature of God. The reason why I believe absolute truth exists is because God is a creator and he's created and, and he is not just created and walked away, but he's created and he's spoken into creation. He's spoken, and let me give you guys a few examples. Psalm 19, here's what he has spoken to all men and women. This is similar to Romans 1. The heavens are declaring of the glory of God in their expanses, declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. His creation is always speaking, it is always revealing, and is revealing to all men, to all times, and all generations, and all cultures. But he doesn't just speak to all in a generic, universal way. He speaks to some in a specific way as well. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. God speaks in two different ways. And this is what all religions claims. God speaks in a universal way that he's spoken to all men and women through creation. But he's also spoken in a, in a specific and a particular way through chosen uh, spokespeople. In the Old Testament, we would call those prophets. In the New Testament, we would call them apostles or those that have written our New Testament letters. Men and women that God has chosen and he's spoken through in a, in a supernatural way. Here's the deal. How do you know when he's spoken, how do you know whether you can trust it? Again, I'd kind of go to the character of God. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. The very nature of God is the kind of thing that allows you to have reliability in what he's spoken. John chapter 8, verse 44, The devil does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Here's what I'm trying to make. The, the nature of, of humanity is such that we don't rightly respond and understand truth. And so God has to speak outside of us and speak beyond us. Meaning this, for most of postmodernity, most of the culture that you and I live in, the idea is this. If you stare into your navel long enough, 
If you meditate, if you go internal, if you do yoga, and if you think deeply and you think long enough, you will discover and find truth. But the reality is you are not conscious of God. You do not know the thoughts of God unless God has spoken and revealed. And He has spoken in a way universally, but it is not enough for you to know His character, His purposes, His activity, and what He desires for you in life. God has to speak externally to us so that we can understand. There have been more times than not that I've realized that what my experience and what my intuition says is wrong. All the girls I thought that liked me in college, and I asked them out, and I realized, no, I misread the signs. My experience was faulty, right? There's something about our experience, while we have great confidence in it, it does not rightly validate or often lead us correctly into truth. And so God has to stand outside of us and speak. And because he's spoken, the question is, where do you find it, and how do you know where he's spoken? Um, Next Sunday, that's really where we're going to go. If there is a necessity for absolute truth, how do you know where he's spoken? So we're going to wrestle with, is the Bible reliable? If God has spoken and every other religion is claiming that their book is where God has spoken, we call the Bible God's word. How do you know the Bible is God's word and the Koran and the Book of Mormon isn't? That's right where we're going next week. So I'd say, hey, if you've got that question you want to wrestle further, that's where we're going next week. But the nature of God is he has to speak so that we can understand beyond what he's revealed universally. And the question for many of you guys is this. If God has spoken universally in creation and we A, don't rightly respond to it, and B, because we don't rightly respond to it, it is enough to condemn us. Many of you guys will ask, especially if you were going to say that the Bible is the God's word, many of you guys will ask this. What about, what about people in Africa? What about people who have never heard the Bible, who didn't hear the prophets of the Old Testament, and they didn't hear the revelation of the New Testament? What about them? Because the challenge is this. Logically, Romans 1 says, God has spoken universally in creation. And what he has spoken universally in creation, Romans 1, leaves them without excuse. It is enough to condemn them. But we'll find this in Acts chapter 17. Paul will say this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The challenge is this, that what God has said in all of creation is enough to condemn, but it is not enough to save. It is not enough to save you by what you can just see strictly by creation alone. It does not reveal to you that God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, who came, who lived perfectly, who died on a cross to take away the penalty of your sin that separated you from Him. Three days after He died, He rose again so that He could forgive your sins and that if you would only believe in Him, He can give you the righteousness of Christ. Creation does not tell you that. Creation tells you enough to actually condemn you, but it does not tell you enough to save you. And so the issue is this. Unless you have the spoken word of God, you do not have enough to be saved, nor do you have enough to understand what God wills and desires for your life. God has to speak so that we know how to walk with Him. We know know what He desires for life. And even in the scriptures, it's not exhaustive. God doesn't give us an answer for every scenario in our life. But apparently He's revealed and He's spoken sufficiently for what we need. Peter will say we have all we need for life and godliness. All that we need for life and all that we need to walk and navigate life out, God has revealed right here. Next week we'll wrestle with, is this really the word of God? But what I want to hit you with is this. What God has spoken universally in creation is enough to condemn. It is not enough to save because God has to speak in a unique and a special way for us to understand more fully what he requires and the problem that has plagued humanity. It causes religion, it causes science to go astray. And unless he's spoken and unless you've heard, you don't have the opportunity to believe. And so many will ask, what about those in Africa? I will tell you that's an answer I would love to unpack for you guys, but we're going to run out of time this morning, so come up with me and talk with me afterwards, okay? 
kind of a little teaser. We're going to have pizza after. If you want to talk through that, I would love to wrestle with you on that. But before I go there, and, or before I wrestle with you guys after that, after lunch, I want to kind of end with you guys on, on two responses. The reality is this. You guys have heard the spoken word of God. You guys have been here uh, semester after semester. Some of you guys, you guys heard us walk through Romans. We're going to walk through James. We're going to walk through book after book of the Bible. God has spoken, and it's in your hands. We'll ask next week if it's reliable, but let's say it is reliable. So you know that's what we're going to say. <laughs> um, if it is reliable, and if it is what God has spoken, the question is, what are you going to do with it? The second reality is not all have that spoken word. Not all have access to the Bible. And so the second reality and the second uh, difficulty you have is what are you going to do about them? First, for you, though, I'm going to give you guys two challenges. One is to know the truth. If you have the spoken word of God and it is in your hands, do you know it? What an amazing privilege you have. You realize not until the printing press did men and women actually have their own personal copy of the scriptures. Most people came to church on Sundays and they had someone stand up here and read it to them. And they actually did far more reading than interpreting because people didn't have the opportunity to hear the word of God daily in their own life. They didn't have quiet times, things that we've created and constructed because they didn't have the word of God right there with them. That's why in the synagogue or in the church, the idea of memorizing the scriptures was so powerful because that's all you had when you went home with it. And what were you going to do with it Monday to Saturday? So the challenge for you, I want to ask you is, do you know the word of God? You have an amazing privilege right here in your hands. And how do you respond to it? I remember when I came to college freshman year, I was dating a girl um, that was still in Dallas. I remember she'd write me letters first semester freshman year. I would run to my mailbox with such anticipation every day that she'd written me. And then I'd, I'd get it, and I would walk back from the MSC when it existed. Sorry, you guys. Walk back to Dunn Hall just with this thing glued in front of me, not even knowing who in the world I was about to run into. I was just stuck on this thing. And yet, in many ways, the scriptures are the same thing to you guys. It is God's love letter to you. God has spoken, and it is as fresh as, as if you wrote it yesterday. And the question is, do you have that same sense of anticipation and awe? Do you open it? Do you know it? Do you have an interest in it? And are you pulled to know it and know it deeper? Let me give you guys a few suggestions uh, uh, for this semester. One is, I tell you, join a small group. Uh, if you guys have never been in one of our Bible studies, if you've never kind of wrestled or, or, or tried to open and study the Word of God, I encourage you guys, sign up for one of our groups studying 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a great book especially if you've never been in one of our Bible studies, and it has some critical truths about the spiritual life, um, critical ideas and, and theology, but also the practicality of how does your life matter? What's eternally significant? Second Timothy is a great book. If you guys have been with us before, if you even want to go uh, deeper this semester, we're going to be studying James. I'll tell you, James is probably one of the most difficult books of the Bible. Uh, I know Ben Stewart covered it in Breakaway last fall. Whether you've been in Breakaway or not, I want to challenge you. Can you study and can you pull truths out of James for yourself? Or do you have to have someone feed it to you? Uh, the challenge and the goal for us as we kind of walk you guys through Bible studies is to teach you how to study the Word of God so you're not dependent on someone to provide you the answers, but you can open it, you can determine truth, you can determine application, you can walk it out in your own life. That's my challenge, you guys, to know the Word of God. And a great way to do that is jumping into a Bible study. Second uh, Timothy, James. If you guys don't know this, last fall was the first time we ever started doing small groups right here in our building. And so every Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30, we have small groups right here. We're going to be studying the book of James this semester. And I'd love to encourage you guys to jump in. It'd be a great chance, not just to jump in the Word, but to build some community. Uh, the chance for you guys to connect with each other every Sunday morning is pretty limited, unless we serve pizza like we will this Sunday. But, uh, but a small group is a great place to go deeper with people and a great place to go deeper in the Word of God. Second, second of all, next week we're going to talk about, hey, is the Bible reliable? So what is it and why is it that we study the scriptures? Why is it that we think they're so unique and different than every other religion and every other book and every other religion? So second thing I want to challenge you guys is not just to know the word of God, but if it's a reality and if it's true that many people, many cultures, many generations don't have it, my question for you is what are you going to do about it? 
If you want to come to me and you want to wrestle with me intellectually on that issue, I'll give you guys some biblical answers. But I'm also going to challenge you, if you care enough to ask me the question, and if it's that much of a burden, what are you going to do about it? And so I have a quick video. We're going to wrap up with this video, then I'm going to come back afterwards. But I think a video is going to kind of challenge you guys right along that vein. What are you going to do about the fact that many people in many generations and many cultures have never heard of the Word of God nor heard the spoken Word of God? The point is obvious, that all across the world, uh, there are those that don't have the scriptures. There are, there are those that don't have the spoken word of God. And yet here, you and I have a great privilege and a great opportunity. And my question for you guys is, what are y'all going to do about it? Um, that you would be the kind of people that would know the word of God, but you'd also be the kind of people that would declare it. Uh, one of the great opportunities we have for you guys, as you guys think about your spring semester, as you guys are walking through it and thinking about your summer, I want to challenge you guys with this, is we're going to go to three different spots all across the globe this summer for six weeks, and I'd love to invite you guys to consider being a part of it. Uh, we're going to go to Greece, we're going to go to East Asia, we're going to go to North Africa. There's three different places where those that are proclaiming Jesus are very small. In fact, for many who don't have the scriptures, you and I, we and I have just said, and we've talked through the fact that this general revelation, the creation itself is enough to condemn men and women, but unless they have the spoken word, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't stand an opportunity to believe and to be saved. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? I'd love to challenge you guys to consider a summer project, but even more, just consider, hey, right here in your own classroom, you don't have to go overseas to be those that would make the Word of God known, not just those that would know it better and study it and be intellectual, but those that would be bold proclaimers of it. And that's my challenge for you guys this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks that you have extended to us an amazing privilege, um, that you've not just created us in your image to know you, to be represented by you, and to to rule on your behalf, but that you've also granted us the opportunity to hear your voice, um, that you've spoken into our lives and that you've granted us meaning, that you've granted us significant, and that you've given us all that is sufficient for life. Father, I pray this semester for many of us as we walk this spring out and as we hit syllabus shock and all the things that are on our plate this spring, Lord, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would give us a conviction to find a place to find, whether it's here with us or whether it's on campus with a, an organization, a place uh, to go deeper with some believers. Um, to wrestle with your word and to wrestle with that which you've spoken. Because if you have spoken, and if it is true, then Lord, we need to hear it. And Father, I pray that you give us a, a desire to know it and a desire to go deeper in it. Father, I pray you'd also give us a, a boldness, Lord, that for those that are uh, not hearing your word, for those that have not heard it nor may have an opportunity to hear it, Lord, I pray that we would be your spokespeople. And that we would be the feet that would bring good news, that we would be the mouth that would proclaim it, and that we would be the kind of people that would begin to broadcast the message that you've given us. Uh, that has been banned, that has been blended, that has been buried, and yet I pray that we would be the kind of men and women that would broadcast it aloud with boldness throughout our country and throughout our, our globe, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.